I gotta tell you, man, I've always loved that intro music, and one of the things I've always wanted to try to do is put some words to that. So uh, maybe we need to have a contest about, you know, make words to the Inside EMS podcast uh, opening credits, but uh, or opening uh, song, jingle, whatever the heck we want to call it. But uh, I want to thank you for joining us once again on Inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sabalero, and this episode of the Inside EMS podcast is sponsored by Boundary Medical. Learn how Bountree can help you save minutes and lives at Bountree.com. And the man that's out there on the street saving minutes and lives is my good friend, Kelly Grayson. How are you this week, Kelly? I'm good, brother. I, I love it how you bring me in like a news anchor and I'm the intrepid on the in the field reporter. <laughs> no, you are the valuable co-host. You are, you know, Cagney and Lacey, Abbott and Costello, Tom and Jerry. You're, you're my guy, man, right? <laughs> um, uh, um. Uh, I'm Lacey because I'm the pretty one. I don't know who I don't remember who was who, but you could be whoever you want. It makes no yeah. difference to me. I'm very, very confident in my masculinity. I can be any female name you want to give me. All right. Well, you already are, Chris. You can call me Betty and Betty when you call me. <laughs> so you can call me Ray. You can call me Jay, but you just doesn't have you to can call, call me Johnson. Johnson. That's right. So another, we're, we're just getting too old, man. I think we're going to have to transition to young, to younger hosts, right? It's under age 40. Yeah. We're going to have to transition to younger inside EMS hosts because we're coming up with the old stuff right now. But uh, anyway, yeah. so, um, you know, Kelly, one of the things that, uh, you know, we get all the time is we get listener mail and, you know, they, uh, you know, ask us for advice. You know, they ask us, you know, to respond to them via email and sometimes we take those letters and we, you know, use them for shows because they're great show ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we have one that I'm going to let you kind of introduce and we can chat about because I think it's one of those topics that a lot of EMS systems um, experience and it's a culture issue, but I'm going to let you set it up. Yeah, we, we got a, a, a nice uh, listener email from a, a gentleman. I won't, uh, I won't mention his name. He requested to be anonymous. Uh, um, but, uh, I, I don't know that the people he works with, uh, are the type from, from what he, uh, writes here that the people he works with are the type to ever, how do you know, how do you know, how do you know it's not a she, by the way? She could be, yeah, All right, could so be. Just, just um, yeah. but, uh, uh, we don't want to out them. Uh, so we're, we're keeping their email anonymous. Uh, although I, I doubt that, uh, that uh, from the way his coworkers or her coworkers actually behave, uh, um, that they're the type to ever read a podcast or seek out education of any kind. Um, but it struck me that that um, in a culture where where uh, EMS is is considered a chore, uh, or or people uh, put out the bare minimum, how do you how do you function? in a culture like that, when you trying to be the best EMT you can be, you know, Tom Dick said once that, you know, being a competent EMT, uh, is, is what you owe to all patients. Um, uh, being a good EMT is what you owe to all patients. It's not something you can take pride in because that's your job. Uh, but the gift you can give all patients, uh, that's above and beyond is, is your empathy and compassion. Um, and, and from the, from the sounds of the letter, uh, there's a whole bunch of folks, uh, lacking empathy and compassion, uh, at, uh, this person's system. I'll read you a little, uh, uh, a little snippet here and we'll, we'll talk. If the patient can walk, they don't need an ambulance. They need an Uber. 
if the patient can't walk, they don't need an ambulance. They need a medic unit. Now, Chris, how many times have you been admonished your EMTs and your staff not to make patients walk to the rig? What do you think? You know, I think that that's one of the things that the, just the expectation of when we're coming to the when we're coming to the uh, scene, you know, one of the things that we've got to remember is that as soon as we make patient contact, we're liable for whatever happens to the patient. Mm -hmm. So they have this complaint. They called us to their home. We walk in. My name is Chris. I'm a paramedic. This is my partner, Kelly. Uh, we're here to take care of you. Is that okay? You get consent. We are liable for whatever happens to that patient at that point in time. So if we're walking them to the ambulance and they fall and, and trip and slam their face on the ground and they bust their teeth, who do you mm -hmm. think is responsible for those teeth now? And yeah. so when we think about it from the standpoint of patient safety, we don't want them to walk to the ambulance. Now, we even have a hard time, Kelly, <clears throat> pardon me, when some of the people will say, I don't want to get on the stretcher, I just want to walk. What do you do then? You know, you still, you still have to be able to say, you know, our policy is that you have to be able to. But this is a big issue, man. I remember um, working in a big metropolitan city, and uh, paramedics were walking people with chest pain down mm -hmm. the stairs. Oh yeah, that and you know that kind of thing does not fly. That that is a uh, now. This is a topic that Gene Gandy and I have argued over, and he has admonished me many times over this because sometimes I I have and will let patients walk. However, I have a simple rule. Um, I don't walk patients if it's convenient for me. I walk patients if it is convenient for the patient. If it's easier for the patient, I will allow them to walk. I never walk a chest pain or a respiratory distress patient or someone who is unsteady. So I'm just curious. I mean, I, I think that's a good practice. You know, as long as it doesn't inconvenience you uh, or, or inconvenience the patient, you know, you're taking yourself out of the equation, which I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are putting themselves in the equation to say, I'm just not doing it. But it, it, do you have a company policy? Our, our company policy is to not walk patients. Uh, and uh, when we can't get the... Uh, when we can't get the stretcher inside the house, um, if there are more than three steps, uh, excuse me, more than two steps to get up to the house, we bring a, a stair chair in, uh, no exceptions. Uh, now, is that is that policy always followed by every employee? No, um, but uh, the policy is pretty clear. Uh, and if we're not following it, we're, we're putting ourselves at, at risk uh, um, if something uh, were to go wrong. But, but here's the thing. You, you can't, you know, every policy, my opinion on it is, you know, I don't walk patients if it's convenient for me. I walk them when it's convenient for the patient. Every policy, every protocol can't be written to address every single situation. There have been plenty of times when patients have met me at the ambulance. Uh, there have been plenty of times when the patient's house is so cluttered or inaccessible that you cannot get a stretcher to them, much less get a, a, uh, a stair chair up the, the, the rickety steps or, or through the, the piles of, of refuse or, the, or the, the very crowded house. Plenty of times that's happened. It's happened in the past. It'll happen again. You can't say never walk a patient because when I walk in and there is a patient who is, who is uh, ill, needs medical attention, but is not in extremis, and it would be easier to walk the patient out. I will assist them to their feet and help them walk out if it's going to be more convenient for the patient. If me putting them, uh, uh, 
picking them up with an extremity carry or moving their furniture around and, and, uh, and making all sorts of, of, uh, ruckus to get them out, uh, is harder for the patient than it is to simply walk 10 feet with a little assistance. Then, then that's what I, uh, I do. I walk the patient. Yeah. And there's also uh, a couple of genius to say, Oh, you, you can't justify that. What if they fell? Well, I'm not going to let them fall. I'm the professional people mover. That's my job is to not let people fall or when people fall to get them off the floor. Uh, I, I don't let them fall. Right. Um, so there's, there are occasions where we're walking patients is fine, but there are also occasions where if I can get the stretcher five feet from the patient, I still don't think they can make that five feet and I'm not going to let them do it. And I will pick them up physically and carry them because you know, all my pulmonary edema patients and who are in severe respiratory distress don't have five steps in them. And, and I'm not going to let that happen. There have been plenty of times when it would be so convenient for me to let them walk a few steps, uh, but bad for the patient. In those, ca- those cases, I will pick the patient up and yeah. put them on the stretcher. And one of the things that I think you got to think about as well is, and I think we've all been in this situation, I want to bring up two points here. The first point is, if the patient walks to the stretcher, if the patient walks to the ambulance, you've got to make certain that you put that in your patient documentation as well. Yes, indeed. Yes, so, indeed. Well, we're, we're expected to do that. And, and not only is that a, you know, from a, 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 a good documentation standpoint, you're, you're supposed to uh, uh, document all the, the facts of the call uh, and how the patient arrived at your ambulance and got in your ambulance included. Um, but, but that is starting to be a billing issue as well. <clears throat> uh, they may not be holding our feet to the fire over it now, but, but they expect, uh, our, our company expects, uh, CMS to do, be doing that in the future. So we're, we're trying you, to be, what are you talking about? What are you saying? How the patient, we have to document, there is a, there is a pick list, how the, uh, that we have to document how the patient got onto the stretcher and got off of the stretcher at the hospital. But Every single we, should, call. we shouldn't be waiting. We shouldn't be waiting for CMS to make that a rule. That should be the we're rule. Not. We're, we're not. But I mean, we were required to document that before because um, it's just good practice. But there will come a time, and, and it's already starting to happen, where CMS is is not going to is going to call into question uh, reimbursement for people that walked to the ambulance or, or, or got off the ambulance stretcher at the hospital and walked to the emergency department bed and that sort of thing. But, that so, was, but that's been a big thing for years, man. You used to be able to have to, you used to have to put in your chart patient was unable to sit, stand or walk. And that's when, right. when it comes right. down to the point of saying that they need an ambulance, that was always kind of the caveat from CMS. But anyway, I do want to bring up the other well, that point. Was, that was always that was always one of the things when it came to interfacility transfers. Where, uh, but uh, in the past they had said, well, you know, uh, if it's an emer- the the uh, uh, definition of an emergency is the patient's perception that there is one, and uh, that sort of thing is is not necessary to document. Well, now they are they want you to document that sort of thing, and I think that's a that's a good thing. We should be doing that. Right. I want to get to my second point, but I'm going to do the mid show read as your partner in EMS for over 40 years. Bountry has made it their goal to provide you with more than just emergency medical supplies and equipment. Bountry partners with you to create efficiencies within your agency, streamline your operations, and help you find ways to make the most out of your budget. Your dedicated account manager will be your true partner, acting as your personal advisor 
to help you determine which solutions are right for you and your specific needs. To find out more or to set up a new account, visit Boundtree.com or call 800-533-0523. You know, Kelly, so I, I talked about, uh, there were two things that I wanted to bring up before you got off onto your soapbox again. And number one was, you know, documentation, which I think is very important. But number two is, as a practice, as a best practice, you should always take your stretcher out of the ambulance and bring it up to the house. Even if you yeah. don't bring it in the house, get it up to the door, because we don't know what we're going to find. And, you know, to, to send the, the fire department out to get the stretcher, to send your partner out to get the stretcher, we are now diminishing the ability to deliver care because one of us is now separated or part of the first responders are separated. Take the ambulance, take the stretcher out, put your equipment on the stretcher, mm -hmm. bring everything in that you need to bring in. You know, we, we find that a lot of EMS personnel choose to be lazy and just walk in with a computer. They don't have anything for diagnostics. They don't have anything for treatment. They don't have anything for care. They don't have the stretcher. And it's just not good practice, man. And I got to tell you, I've been guilty of this. And it's till you learn the error of, error of your ways. And again, the people who have been in EMS for countless years have taken those calls where it's been a minor medical emergency to find out that the patient is in cardiac or respiratory arrest. And I've had a couple of those where I walked in and I had a first in bag, which wasn't going to help me. And yeah. the, you know what it is? I mean, that is just that is just poor professionalism on my part. That was my complacency. That was my laziness. And it affected my ability to deliver the highest quality of patient care at the most needed time because I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, several years back, uh, I, I got burned that way. Uh, exactly what you're talking about. Sunday morning, um, a call for a syncopal episode at an apostolic church. Uh, and uh, I wrote it off as a simple case of TMJ. Somebody had too much Jesus and fell out. And um, uh, so we walked in with the clipboard in the first in bag and didn't bring our cardiac monitor and didn't bring our stretcher. Uh, and we walked in to find them doing CPR on a woman. I was like, oh, not good. <laughs> this is uh, uh, this is not good at all. So we, we had to I had to send my partner back out and, and rush back out to, to get the uh, monitor and the ALS bag. Uh, and uh, it burned me pretty bad. But uh, lesson learned there. One of the things that strikes me about the, the culture that, that this person sees at their services is patients are a burden rather than the reason we're there. So we, we talked about the, this first statement that's prevalent in their agency. Here's another one. You make it more complicated than it has to be. You ask if the patient wants to go to the hospital, if they can walk, get vitals at some point, and be nice to them. Nothing you learn will change what we have to do at the BLS level. Chris, what do you do with people that do the bare ass minimum uh, to be an EMT? You know, yeah. I, uh, what is the deal? Uh, first of all, I, I object to the the whole premise that there's nothing you can do, nothing you're going to learn about the patient is going to change what you do at the BLS level. But you know, here's a bunch of people just going through the motions. You know, I think that that's a culture issue. I mean, when we talk about this from the standpoint of, you know, vision, strategy, and culture, vision is where you're going, strategy is how you're going to get there, culture is the behavior of the organization and route to reaching the vision. 
And if we are allowing people not to bring their stretchers or to walk people to, that's because we're not giving good clinical oversight. We're not giving good mm-hmm. operational oversight in the field. And one of the things that we need to do is we need to be able to see those people who are not, you know, following the standards. You have to remember, Kelly, taking somebody from the stretcher, uh, from the house, putting them on the stretcher and taking them to the hospital is supposed to be the prescription that the medical director is saying he wants for their patients or she mm-hmm. wants for their patients. So if we're not doing good field oversight with either clinical supervision, and I believe in operational supervisors that they run the operations of the system, but we need to have clinical supervisors in the field as well who are able to do uh, clinical evaluations of patients. And I think that those are great jobs for the field training officers. It's true. Put the field training officers on the truck when you have a new patient. I'm sorry, when you have a new employee and they need to be able to be trained on the ways of the system. But then when there's no training, put somebody else in their ambulance and let those first let those FTOs get into mm-hmm. a, a chase vehicle and do field evaluations on their on their you know on their peers. And because it may be the day that the field training officers aren't just training new, uh, new employees, but they may need to be doing some retraining with some incumbent employees as well. And we don't yes. use them, but I digress. So, well, but if we have good field uh, evaluations, we're going to be able to coach the people who are not following the rules. They're not bringing in their bags. They're not bringing in the stretcher. They're walking people. So what this, this letter is telling me is that there is not good field evaluations of the providers and the only thing that we're doing here is we're failing the providers of making them the very best that they can be they don't understand the importance of of walking a patient they don't understand the importance of bringing in all their and if we're truly going to have a vision of exceptional patient care we've got to be able to determine if they're doing it that way yeah you know and and I, I'll I'll disagree with you slightly. Uh, There's a surprise. I don't, There's a well, surprise. Actually, it's not so much a disagreement; it's a clarification. It's it's. I think with given the statements that uh, that our our listener uh, makes in in his or her email, um, that the the apathy and the rot extends beyond the field crews and the supervisors and the FTOs are are uh, adopting it as well and and uh, promulgating it. Because um, this sort of thing, um, uh, any good FTO or supervisor would squash. Uh, so if it's going on, it's probably going on with their tacit uh, approval. Um, you know, this uh, th- this thing. Uh, there's nothing you're going to do uh, that's going to change what you do at the BLS level. I disagree strenuously. There are plenty of times when, first of all, philosophically, there is nothing wrong with knowing more about the patient. You will never be wrong by knowing more about the patient. Um, You may not be able to uh, directly act upon the knowledge uh, according to your scope of practice, but you can smooth the transition to the emergency department. You can bring the patient to the appropriate emergency department rather than the one that's closest to you. the uh, a more thorough history and physical exam allows you many more options as to care, um, even at the BLS level, uh, including the things that are probably most important is what we don't do. Uh, when we assess a patient, 
and obtain a, uh, a, a thorough history, uh, there's a whole lot of things we do as an EMT that we or an or medic that we don't do uh, because now that we know more about the patient's history and, and physical presentation, that it's not appropriate. Uh, if we know that grandma uh, has COPD and she has been ill for a week and has had very poor dietary intake and she's dehydrated and so on and so forth. Uh, maybe for her wheezing, we don't need to mix some ipratropium in with that albuterol until she's properly hydrated. Um, cause if we know, you know, that she's, that she's dehydrated, then the, the, uh, um, the ipratropium is going to turn that, that mucus to concrete in her lungs. Uh, it, it's better to defer that until she's hydrated properly or, um, whatever intervention, um, that we take, uh, we might choose to withhold if it's not the best for the patient at this time, rather than just monkey see monkey do patient got wheezes. We give bronchodilators, uh, patient has altered mental status. We give dextrose, uh, that sort of thing. So I, I kind of reject that. Um, you know, but, but the whole statement, I ask them if they want to go to the hospital, ask them if they can walk, get vitals at some point, be nice. This is someone who is going through the motions uh, and doesn't want to be an EMT. They're, for whatever reason, forced to be an EMT, and they're just doing the bare minimum uh, required of them, um, as evidenced by, by another statement. Um, on a slow day, they say, well, this is how it's supposed to be. We're only supposed to be running the true emergencies and not the routine sick person calls. And, and our listener says it's the same people that say that sort of thing, oppose their uh, department's attempts at mobile integrated health and community paramedicine. They don't think we should be doing that sort of thing. You know, man, that's an archaic view of EMS. Don't you agree? It's <laughs> our profession has evolved to the point where we're not simply 911 responders responding to what we consider emergencies. We are professional out-of-the-hospital problem solvers, plain and simple. And often solving that problem means that we pick the patient up and take them to the emergency department where more definitive care can be rendered. But, uh, much, more, uh, but much more commonly, uh, solving that problem can involve the tenets of mobile integrated health care uh, or simple customer service. Um, and there's many, many things we can do uh, to solve those problems. And if you just resent every call that's not in your eyes, an emergency, um, you're doing your patients a disservice. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Are you stuck in such an agency where the vast majority of your coworkers uh, are content with doing the bare minimum? How do you deal with it? Uh, do you vote with your feet or do you try to change from within? And if you have been able to change the culture a little bit or influence it, we'd like to hear how you did it. Email us at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sabalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.